0: For today, let me introduce um, Sheikh Michael, uh, who's a scholar at Trinity Hall, Cambridge University, and has published several works on theology, philosophy, history, um, and Islamic law, the theory and interpretation. But there is something that I wanted to read to you from Sheikh Michael, because as useful as it is to know somebody's academic background, it's really useful to know their perspective on things. So the Sheikh very helpfully um, put together this really nice sort of snippet of how he sees today and the purpose of today. So, he wrote, "One of the key lessons I have learned from the lives and contributions of the ordinary as well as luminary revolutionary Muslim women I have come across in early Arabic Islamic sources is that there is no such thing as a respectable or decorous way to resist injustice." Today we see how in many Muslim communities the view that those who are constantly dehumanised and subjected to racism, misogyny, misogynoir and other forms of injustices should exercise sabr, patience, or husn al-zan, assuming the best of others, and adab, polite and respectable conduct. To do this when when speaking truth to power and resisting oppression is, is used to maintain the status quo and silence resistance, especially for women and black people. I plan to share my thoughts on this topic and learn from all members of the audience this coming Saturday at the Free Word Centre London. Shake my morning,
1: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Rabbil Alameen, <laughs> Wassalatu Asalamu Ala Ashrafil anbiyai wal Mursaleen, Nabi Muhammad bin Abdullah. Salwatullahi alayhi wa ala alihi al-tahirin wa ala man qama bi-da'wa ti-tawhid ila yawm din wa Right, you don't have to worry about this. Okay, so, so that's the opening dua or supplication or prayer. Uh, we always begin in the name of God. Um, I would like to thank you for inviting me uh, once again. Uh, this is not the first time I've been invited. And every time I uh, attend these events and I get to meet people, I'm always learning. And I'm always uh, developing my own knowledge. So I always come not to teach you anything, but to learn a lot from you for free, because I don't have to pay fees for it. So. There's a lot uh, we learn through these encounters. I, uh, you, many of you are familiar with Professor Amina Wadud and her work. She said something to me um, a, f- a few years ago, and she said that we learn more um, from engaging with real flesh and blood people and their lived experiences and our own lived experiences than we do from reading scriptures or religious texts. And I think this is a very important uh, teaching. It is a teaching that goes back centuries, right from the beginning of the development of Islamic uh, scholarship, that the lived experiences of people are important. They inform our reading of scriptures and they should inform how we develop our, our ideas on law, theology, Uh, interpretation, and so forth, and so on. A good interpretation of religious texts and scriptures is one that is informed by people's lived realities and experiences. This is why we find today that the greatest and most important contribution uh, to what you might call the theological legal or philosophical contribution to Islam has come from Islamic feminists who introduced, for the first time, gender as a category of analysis. So what do we mean by this? Uh, Although women had played a significant role in the development of knowledge in early Islam, at some point in history, they were written out of that uh, history. Their contribution was uh, erased um, through t- due to various uh, reasons and factors we can discuss maybe during the question-and-answer session. Texts were written by men, mostly by men, uh, even on subjects relating to women. These texts were being written by men. And informing their students and their readers what they think uh, women's uh, experiences were and how to uh, respond to the challenges faced by women. So, we had a body uh, of literature that was passed on from generation to another, and students today study these texts. I've studied them myself, Uh, and uh, they are written through the voices of men and they are not v- very accurate. Uh, they are not even in any way any representations of the experiences of women. So, so, th- so we have that lit- body of literature. We also have uh, literature that does not in any way record the lived experiences of people who were living on the margins of the Muslim empires. Often we focus a lot on the grand narratives, the big stories, the big texts that we think were the texts that were seminal and ignoring the texts on the margins. Often we also assume that these big texts, the texts which became canonical, uh, were always like that. Uh, we don't stop to consider that maybe they became famous not because they were the, the ideas were correct ideas or true ideas, but because they had power on their side. They had the power of the ruling caliph who patronized these scholars and enabled them to produce more works and institutionalized their works in, throughout the empire. And in these processes, you had women being, of course, written out, even though they had their own majalis, gatherings, or classes, uh, but they were let down mostly by their students, because very often students would uh, would deliberately omit the female names of their teachers, uh, wanting to to be seen as people who had only studied under the famous and celebrity preachers of the day. So those who were not deemed to be celebrity preachers, mostly women, because they were not given the platforms, um, they uh, eventually were written out of history. Uh, And most of the works we have inherited from the past Uh, most of them uh, were originally written as class notes, prepared as notes for presentation in gatherings like this. And then the students would then go on and compile these works and attribute them to their teachers. And many of the authors we see on the covers of the book did not write the works themselves. They merely prepared the notes, and there were cases in which the Scholar would edit the notes prepared by the students. So in situations where uh, patriarchy, uh, really uh, the mechanism of exclusion and, and uh, inclusion and exclusion were on the basis of gender, it meant that uh, some women, even those who had students, uh, found that the students didn't record those works, or if they recorded them, they put their own names on the cover uh, and we inherited those works, and assuming them to have been written by men when some of them had been written by women. So this was uh, a common trend. So, so this is why it's important, the work that uh, Islamic feminists in recent years have done is extremely important. But these are not new movements. They are as old as Islam itself. Right from the beginning of Islam, we had women like who challenged, in the time of the prophet, who challenged the patriarchal laws relating to divorce. Uh, And if you read in the Quran, there's a chapter which begins, God has heard the voice of the woman who complained to you, or who challenged you relating to these particular laws, and then complained to God. Um, and this verse, uh, you read the commentaries. They give detailed information from Khawla herself, explaining what had happened. She was a victim of domestic violence. She was married to one companion, or Sahaba, who was very violent. And she had been uh, subjected to a lot of uh, violence at home. And um, one day, he decided was just going to divorce her using the pre-Islamic uh, divorce uh, laws. Uh, At at that time, new laws of divorce had not yet been introduced in Islam, and she came to the prophet complaining. She felt that this was a great injustice, uh, but because new laws had not yet been revealed, there was nothing the prophet could do, and he told her, I can't go against the establishment. I'm a new prophet. They are not going to listen to me if I tell them these laws are unjust. Uh, And she was not pleased with that, and there was an exchange, uh, and then she tend to God according to the uh, accounts you read in the commentaries, uh, and it was then that the verse was revealed. What is also interesting for me in that particular verse is how she is described as a woman who uh, did what is called jidal. Jidal is not a kind of dialogue or conversation. It is a confrontation uh, when you confront injustice. The, term, the Arabic term used is jidal, which literally means to confront someone to confront uh, injustice. She didn't do it politely. She didn't exercise sober patience. And she, you know, she did everything uh, not in accordance with what we are told that we should do when we challenge injustice. And yet, the revelation that came according to Muslim uh, belief uh, didn't condemn her in the way that she challenged injustice. It, in fact, she was praised for, for that. she became known as the mujadilah, the that woman, the confrontational woman who challenged and confronted uh, injustice. So the work that we see uh, Islamic feminists doing today is really in a long line of tradition uh, in Islam uh, which started with people like Khawla and also uh, Fatima, the, uh, the daughter of the prophet, uh, many examples from Aisha uh, and many others. I mention these because they are the most famous, but there are many others, uh, you know, often not uh, written about, but who also contributed a lot. And, and this is why the view that uh, we can't judge the past by the standards of the present is a flawed uh, way of looking at the past. Because it assumes that there were no voices of protest from the past. And it positions the dominant voices, those of the oppressor, as the only voice that existed in the past, as the only voice that is worthy of listening to. So when, you hear, when I hear someone saying, we can't judge the past by the standards of the present, I already know the person is on the side of the oppressor. Because you're assuming that those voices didn't exist. The voices of protest against injustice, they have always existed. So voices of protest against injustice have always existed. They are as old as human history. We find it not just in the Muslim Uh, History in other histories as well and this applies to every topic under the sun, gender, race, slavery and everything. There has never been a time in which these things were morally acceptable. Um, So they have always uh, been condemned. There were people on the margins condemning them. It's because we choose not to read those voices on the margins and that's why it's important when you're reading the past, always start from the margins. Read those texts that are often neglected the text that people don't want to read, read them. You learn more from what the main texts don't say than really by just looking at the, uh, the grand stories. Right. So yes, the, 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 the stories are important. And I have also been advised or asked that I talk about, uh, I focus on rather personal experiences, uh, personal stories, my own, And this is difficult, Um, the introverted self, my introverted self is not very good at this sort of thing. But I'll try my best to share those experiences, (coughs) drawing on my own uh, life and experience, on how uh, we think about uh, issues such as justice, injustice, and resistance to justice, to injustice, resistance. uh. And... um, and in, 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 why is this important? I think it is important because people's lived experiences matter. They are important. They inform how we read scriptures. They inform how we read texts. And they also inform how we choose to engage in uh, justice movements or just to sit on the side as spectators. So as I said, people's lived experiences and encounters with flesh and blood human beings are important and should inform how we interpret texts. And they have informed my own engagement with the text. I was born uh, in a Muslim family, uh, brought up in a Muslim family. My father was Muslim. His father was Muslim, their father going back generations. Uh, they were all Muslims. Uh, people often ask me, "What about your name?" Uh, they say it's not a Muslim name. There is no such a thing as a Muslim name. <laughs> the, 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 there's no such a thing as a Muslim name. You have Arabic names. You have English names. You, there's no such a thing as a Muslim name. Any name is a Muslim name. Anyway, the name was given uh, to me. My father gave me the name in honor uh, of his friend who was called, uh, you know, Michael or Michael, depending on your. You can choose any pronunciation you like, I don't mind. Uh, and this is a very African thing to do, that uh, when, the world, you know, when your favorite football team win a match, you can name your child after the name of the football team, or you can uh, name your child after your, you know, your best friend, or, or someone who has done something in your life. So in the case of my father, it was his best friend uh, was an Englishman called Michael. And I was given that name. And um, I, it was important to my father, so it was important to me too. it is a Muslim name because it's in the Quran as well. And if you don't like it, then I'll pass fatwa on you. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because, because in the Quran it says, whoever is the enemy to God, and Gabriel, and Michael, be careful, right? So the Quran says that. You know, so if you don't like the name, then something wrong with you, We pass far too so, <clears throat> so that was the, um, the kind of environment. Of course, although I lived in a Muslim family, we were surrounded by Christians. So I was familiar with the Christian traditions. And I was familiar with Christian, the lived experiences of Christians. They were neighbors, they were friends, some were even distant relatives. And, but I, I didn't know anything about, uh, uh, members of the Jewish communities. So my knowledge uh, of the members of the Jewish communities was informed my read, by my reading of scriptures. I'll come to that. But because I lived uh, with Christians, uh, neighbors, although uh, we were probably the only Muslim family and then ad- another one was maybe you know, distant away, well not many of us in that area, uh, but we were surrounded by Christians and in a, in a country, in a region in the Southern Africa during colonialism and apartheid during the time of resistance uh, against oppression. So our allies and our friends were Christians in that struggle uh, because we were surrounded by, uh, by Christians, not Muslims. because the apartheid system divided people on the basis of their race regardless of, you know, Faith didn't feature into it, so you you had uh, Muslims who were if if they were of Indian origin, they were placed in areas allocated for mostly Indians. So you'd have a high concentration of Muslims in those areas, and those who were black or white uh, were placed in their own areas. So you'd find white Muslims would be probably to be the only family there, black Muslims similarly. So uh, so when you read the when you had The imam reading the verse in the Quran, for example, Quran 3, verse 28, let not believers take disbelievers as allies other than the believers. It didn't apply to you. Although it was there in black and white in the text, your lived experience, your lived reality challenged that particular text because there was no way you were going to say, well, I'll only rely on Muslims when they are miles away. You are not even allowed to meet them. The people who come and wake you up at night to tell you that the police are coming to round people up are your Christian neighbors. So they were your allies in the trenches. They were your friends. So your reading of the scriptures on issues relating to the religious other were informed by your lived realities. So you didn't buy into the idea that the Christian is going to hell because you know that the Christian has been there for you when you when no one else was there for you. When uh, there was a huge debate in South Africa whether Nelson Mandela was going to hell or or to paradise. That was a debate. There's a book written uh, by a good uh, scholar and uh, friend, someone I admire, Farid ishaq uh, wrote a book called Uh, on being Muslim, I I strongly recommend that. There's a chapter on this discussion. This is the kind of discussion. So it was a theological, some people thought it was important to question whether Mandela would go to heaven or not. Um, But for many Muslims who had lived uh, under apartheid, who had experienced it, that was not even a question to have. They took it for granted that yes, he was going to heaven and that uh, there were many Muslims who collaborated with the apartheid system. Although the Quran, in almost every chapter, justice is an important part of the Quran. It's one of the attributes of God. Uh, Islam is the religion of justice. We preach this from the member. And yet, in reality, there were people were giving. I sat in one of the sermons in a place called Azadville in Johannesburg, where I heard an imam preaching on the merits of the apartheid system right? So, so there were people who felt that the apartheid system was good for Muslims. They meant Indian Muslims because then they could live in their own communities, they could build their own schools, they could do, develop their businesses, and they were not affected at all by the laws in the same way that the black communities were, and the so-called colors, that's a South African term for mixed race, were affected by the apartheid system. So, the, for the Muslim who lived in the so called township, the black township, the ally was not the believer in this particular verse. It was the Christian neighbor, the Marxist neighbor, the socialist neighbor, and it was the gay neighbor. It was the, you know, all these were the allies uh, in the struggle for justice. And they turned up. You know. So, their reading, therefore, was informed by these lived realities. So, it's This is why encounters are important and why real encounters with people should inform how we read text and how we develop our theologies. It's lazy theology if it is just based on text. It doesn't take into account people's lived realities. That's a lazy way of doing theology. It is bad theology. Then I did say that I had not met any Jews at all. So, my understanding of the Jewish uh, experiences or Jewish history or faith was based on my reading of the Quran and Islamic texts written by Muslims. And that is the experience of many Muslims, even in this room, uh, if they have not met any member of the Jewish uh, community. So, you'd have had uh, and read a lot of things, um, you know, uh, when you're growing up. And it was only after actual encounters, when I went to university, uh, there was um, a cafe where this Jewish student community uh, union was organised, so they had their own cafe because we were concerned about halal and haram, so we wanted to eat kosher, it was halal, you see. So we started going there to eat, you know, the bagels, the salmons and... And uh, we started having conversations. It was only, and also through studies, some of our professors, that we discovered that most of what uh, we had studied and most of what we thought we knew uh, about uh, Jews and their experiences and their history uh, was not an accurate representation of their lived experiences, of their faith, uh, traditions, uh, and their histories. And so when uh, we read some of the, even the texts, we read uh, Islamic texts, so we are always reminded of that, that, well, uh, these are the writers' points of view. In other words, we learn more about the writers of the text than we learn about actual Jews and actual women, for example. So you learn a lot more about Suyuti than you learn about women, Suyuti wrote on women. You learn a lot more about uh, al-Jahid who wrote on women than you actually do about women. So if you want to read and understand the experiences of women, then you have to read about women. And so the body of literature we inherited, yes. um, When it comes to issues relating to uh, interreligious dialogue, relating to gender, sexualities, uh, race, it is problematic. You have to read it. Uh, with, you adopt what we call a hermeneutic of suspicion. You have to uh, look at this text carefully. Uh, and you, often you learn more about the time in which they were written, more about the authors than what they claim to be about. Right. Yes, racist readings of the Bible exist, uh, racist readings of the Quran exist, and some Muslims may not realize that there's a huge body of literature are written, especially in areas of anti-black racism. Uh, Racist interpretations of the Quran are there. Uh, Racist interpretations of hadith are there. So, and some of these are recycled, uh, often not uh, in a way that you may see, but they inform how people engage with the racial other. I'm talking about Muslim communities. So some of the things uh, we see in Muslim communities, uh, the, uh, the attitudes that others have, has been, these attitudes have been informed by some of these readings. Um, these, the, the racism operated at different levels. You have at more theological level, and then you have got at sort of uh, grassroots level encounters between people. Uh, some of it is just a, you know, historical, social, whatever, but there is a degree of it, which is also theological, uh, which operates at that level, especially among scholars that only uh, people can ident- People who read from the margins can identify and see these things. So uh, people on the margins often see with a third eye. They see things that we often take for granted. They, question, they ask questions about things that we often take for granted. So women will ask questions that I, as a man, uh, will take for granted, overlook this has happened so many times in some of my readings of hadith then it was always either a woman would ask me but what do you think this hadith means you know for example the hadith famous hadith that uh, if uh, if a husband and wife uh, if the husband spend the night uh, unpleased with the wife then the angels are kissing the wife uh, and some woman asks what about if it's the other way around if, it's the, if, the, if it is the husband who's the trouble, so are the angels kissing him too? But the hadith doesn't say that. It only discusses the, the woman. So then if you are an honest scholar, you ask these questions. You want to know why these texts say these things the way they say them. That becomes important. But these questions come about after real encounters with people. When you just read a text in a corner, it's an isolated existence. Um, you are drawing on your own experiences. Uh, if you haven't had any encounter with people from different sexual backgrounds or uh, of se- sexual orient- uh, orientation, so your reading uh, will be based purely on the text. And that brings me to uh, the, that other topic as well, which is an important topic. So I'll be, there'll be pauses because uh, we have an interpreter. So I have to be careful that I, i when I speak, it's not fast and it's, um, and also it gives me chance to check some of my notes and, <laughs> <coughs> and I can use that as an excuse. So this is a brilliant idea. Yeah. Right. So. So. When I was growing up, like others, um, I had not had any real encounters with uh, someone who was gay, for example. I may have had, but I didn't know. Not some, with anyone who openly say uh, they were gay. Uh, that didn't happen until later uh, through a real encounter with people. So my own uh, thinking on the subject, on the topic, was informed by my upbringing uh, as an African Muslim, right? So, um, and uh, and and that's how it wasn't a, a priority for me. You know, I wasn't thinking. You know, this person is gay. Or, that's not an issue. And. In Africa, it's quite common to see guys (laughs) hugging and holding hands. A guy lying on someone's lap—it's part of the culture. So, uh, we don't have these uh, kind of, as we as we're beginning to see in the West, that you you interpret uh, relationship between uh, people. We were not brought up with that, so we didn't have that. I went to boarding school too, so uh, we uh, we knew these things. You know, we we had stories, and you know, but. We, it was not based on what we thought we. Someone looked, you know, the way someone looked like. So, so the actual, um, uh, the actual, you know, encounters were really in life through meeting people in these kind of environments that we begin to. Le- I started learning more uh, about the subject, and I started rereading some of the texts I had been reading on the topic. Uh, and as I say to you, yes, uh, you know, even when you're in school, I mean. I, The school I went to it was boys boarding school, so we had things, we had stories, you know. But you, you know, those are just stories. You don't actually get to see someone who come and openly say I'm gay and things like that, right? So, so these um, these encounters did inform how uh, we started looking uh, at some of the uh, some of the the texts, and one of the Challenges, I think, for Muslim theologians and scholars like myself, is how to do good theology when it comes to this subject. Uh, and we often opt for the easy one, the lazy one, of saying this is a choice, um, and that uh, people are choosing to live this life. In other words, homosexuality is a choice. It's not a choice, right? Um, you know, deciding to to exist on samosas and McDonald's—that's a choice, right? So. Um, it's not a life choice, um, and 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 you know it's not a choice to be black. It's not a choice to be a woman, and it's also not a choice to be gay or uh, to be uh, LGBT. So that's how people are created and born. So the idea that it's a choice uh, is something that uh, we grew up with uh, until, of course, we started learning more about the subject, and we were challenged to learn more about the subject through encounters, I wouldn't have bothered to look into this topic because, as I said, it wasn't a priority, right? But then I started having young people come to me. This has happened in number of, a few times. Uh, one young man to, came to me and told me he was a Muslim, and he had contemplated committing suicide uh, because he was struggling with his uh, sexuality. And uh, he's gay and is a, a good Muslim, And he was convinced that he can't be gay and Muslim uh, at the same time. Uh, And yet we know that uh, sexuality is not an article of faith. It's not an article of Iman, you know. It has nothing to do with your Iman, your being a Muslim or not being a Muslim. And some people had told him that uh, he he could go to an imam somewhere in Bradford. They would pray for him and it would all come out. Um, you know, I asked him. You know, I told him I don't think that's possible because uh, I am, you know, heterosexual. You can't pray for me to be gay. You know, you can do all the duas. I will always remain the way I am. That's how I was created. So there's no reason why I should think that uh, it's possible to create the gay out of someone, right? So, 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 so the view that you can uh, pray for people uh, uh, is really based on the assumption that. Uh, Heterosexuality is the norm. Uh, It is the only way that God created everyone. uh, When we know that God created diversity uh, and that those who are different are somehow choosing uh, to live their lives like that. And there's no one who chooses to do something and then contemplate suicide. Uh, We know that's not how it works. So people, uh, I think there was a survey done this year. Uh, Yoga, uh, there's a uh, Yoga I think, did a survey. They found out that one in three people in Britain believe that it's a choice. Although a majority of people believe that it's not a choice, one in three believe it's a choice. So um, so it, um, I think the, although the, the knowledge is developing, uh, but for lazy theologians uh, it's quite easier to go to that choice, uh, because then it means you don't have to do a lot of theology. You see, the theology you have to do when you accept that people are created that way is much more challenging, but also important, because you have to ask yourself, how would a just God create someone, someone this way, and then decide that this person is going to hell on the basis of how God he created them. So that's not a just God. So if you believe in a god of justice, then you have to ask yourself difficult questions about how that god uh, engage with uh, human being, human beings with creation. Right. So yes, the idea that um, these were uh, lifestyles really were, were reinforced by textual readings, by literalist readings, because they reduced identities to acts, to what people do. When identities are about more, they are about emotional uh, and psychological, they have an emotional and psychological component to them. Uh, They are not about the acts of what people do. No one defines heterosexual people in that way, through acts. They are looked at as holistic human beings with emotions of love and experiences, uh, and they choose to to express that love uh, in many ways. Uh, And and that really is the case with all human beings, that they have an emotional, uh, psychological uh, component to their identities, which cannot be reduced or limited to what they do to their deeds and actions. Although those deeds and actions may be important to them, but it is certainly not the totality of their being and their existence. And so so these are some of the questions that I have struggled with Uh, as someone who read the early text and who is also, in a way, a textualist, uh, brought up as a textualist. But I'm not saying I am a prisoner of the text. I have already told you that I I was brought up in a context. I come from a tradition where the lived reality matter. It's It's a matter of life and death. Your reading of the text can be a matter of life and death. So I'm not prepared to make judgment on a person on the basis of what is written in ink. Uh, I'm not going to say uh, someone should be killed simply on the basis of what I've seen written in ink. I am more interested in how I can relate and engage with people as human beings. And I think that is more important, and that kind of theology is more difficult to do Uh, because people want certainties and often people find comfort, lazy people find comfort by sticking to the text or simply uh, reading around uh, the text. But if the text is to become existentially meaningful to you here and now, then it means you need to look at other and more ways of reading that particular text. And it is in this area that the work that uh, Islamic feminists in particular have done is extremely important. It's important because it has forced uh, all of us to look at these texts again. I'm not saying that this uh, idea of reading and rereading the text is something new, it is uh, part of the um, uh, Islamic scholarly tradition, Uh, but uh, the questions that are being asked today, uh, the kind of questions that people in the past either did not bother to ask, or if they did ask, those questions were put in the margins, uh, and you will often find them in the footnotes, not in the main text you are reading. So so that is uh, the greatest contribution, but it is also not to, I'm not also suggesting that uh, that has not been without controversy. In fact, the fierce uh, opposition to these kinds of readings, particularly readings done by people on the margins, is precisely because these readings are important. Uh, It is because that the introduction of gender as a category of analysis is extremely important. It's because of that reason that we are finding that resistance uh, is aggressive and as fierce as it is, especially on social media, uh, where women uh, who choose to take a stand, uh, who choose to express themselves are shut down in very violent violent ways. I remember um, in the 90s, one of our teachers was socially conservative, um, traditionalist. He said uh, with, this was within the context of, you know, <coughs> colonialism and apartheid, where you had a younger generation of theologians, you know, our generation, and mostly women who were beginning to ask questions and challenge the sort of traditionalist interpretations of the situation, where you're being told that you just have to respect the way things are, uh, have passion, you know, exercise uh, in an apartheid system, and so forth. We are okay. We have our own schools. We shouldn't jeopardize that. We shouldn't do anything that will undermine uh, our uh, existence. So uh, you know that when you go home on holidays or when you travel, uh, you are restricted because of the racist and White supremacist laws, so you had to take a stand, and you wanted to take a stand as a Muslim because you're a Muslim. So you had, um, so there were there were so many examples to draw upon, you know, from Muslim history. You had Hussein, you know, who became a key figure for people, for our generation, you know, and uh, we wanted to identify with Hussein, not with Yazid, right? So, 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 you know, and uh, that meant that we a different uh, position from that of, um, of our teachers. Uh, but the discussion was always from the teacher's point was that, well, a uh, younger generation of scholars were being dismissed as modernists, which was a, a dirty word uh, in that context. Uh, and uh, all kinds of words and labels that they may have the media, they may have that, but we have the pulpit, the member from which to you know, to convey the message. Uh, And so, because women were not allowed into the mosque, forget about the member, they can't even come through the door. So it meant that they didn't have a platform uh, from which to express and to speak. Uh, So you had now radio stations opening, uh, and uh, women were trying to get their presenters onto some of the radio stations. In one of the cases, including uh, Radio Islam in South Africa, which went through the courts, uh, the Constitutional Court, uh, women, young women were challenging that uh, they couldn't be excluded uh, from the channel purely on the basis of their gender. And the channel was arguing that, well, this is our religious uh, belief, which is enshrined in the new South African constitution. But then they also had theologians who were say, no, this is, there's no Muslim scholar who has said that the voice of a woman is Aura, right? It doesn't exist anyway. So the radio lost the case. So they were forced to, uh, to introduce women, but then they gave them the Samusa program to do. Right. So, but it was a first step. So the idea that the platform uh, should be the control of the ulama is Part of the reason why uh, it has played a significant role in monopolising knowledge and power. But social media has changed that. Social media has created a a new member for people. They don't have to go through the door into the mosque to express themselves. They can say it on the member. Women can do that. And this is why you find the the reaction, the backlash, or if you want to call it that, with the, the violent uh, reaction uh, from mostly men uh, who see this as a threat because now the uh, social media has democratized uh, knowledge, the production and dissemination of knowledge. Uh, you can write your blog, you can say what you want, and even though you're not allowed through the doors of some mosque, not all uh, some mosques, then at least you can do that from the from the from the from a social media platform. So, so the so part of the kind of misogynistic responses you get when people uh, choose to speak are really a reaction uh, against uh, what they see as a threat to the. Uh, to, the, to, to knowledge or the production of knowledge and the monopolization of knowledge. But there's also uh, a racial element to it, uh, especially whenever I think of scholars like Amina Wadud, although she hasn't said anything that male scholars have not said in the past or even today, but some of the re- reaction or response to her views is different, is much more violent. And that is because she's a black woman Right. And I remember uh, a few years ago, there was an American uh, writer, an American scholar, Muslim uh, academic, I think, who almost plagiarized uh, all the ideas uh, of Amin Wadud and published an article online. And it was shared by everyone, people praising him for being uh, forward thinking, and visionary, and things like that. Uh, the same thing if it had been written, uh, I mean, she has, obviously, already written on the subject. Many other Islamic feminists have written on the topic, but the response has been different. Right. So, uh, so this is, these are some of the things that happen when people uh, choose to speak truth to power, and to take a, when they decide to take a stand, especially if there are people who have historically been uh, excluded from the conversation. But this shouldn't deter people from from taking these positions, and I know that uh, many people do so at great personal, uh, you know, loss. I mean, many people, the emotional uh, and mental uh, abuse that you experience uh, when you speak out uh, can be too much. But I. And I hope that people will continue to do so because really this is not the first time this has happened and women have taken these positions before. Uh, There's a book compiled around, around the, by, it's called Balagatu Nisa, compiled in the early Abbasid period. It was compiled by a man, but in his introduction he said something. Uh, and he said that I'm compiling this particular text. He said, I wanted to, uh, I noticed that most of the, the rhetoric, the balaga rhetoric was an important uh, field in, in, least in the development of Islamic knowledge. Most of the works on, w- were produced by men and I wanted to see if anything had been produced by women. And in my research, he writes, uh, I found out that what women had produced was more and surpassed what men had produced. And then, but he went to produce a small booklet. But that introduction is important. But if you understand what balaga is, balaga means the art of speaking in public. So we know that the the fact that these texts exist clearly suggests that women were speaking. The examples he collects, he has examples from uh, Aisha, from Fatima, and uh, many others uh, included in the list of women and examples of their their public uh, speeches. Uh, and these were uh, delivered in, in public uh, and often to oppressive rulers, in front of oppressive rulers. Uh, and uh, in fact, most of them in the text were <laughs> delivered uh, to speeches where uh, women stood up in front of uh, oppressive rulers and uh, challenged uh, those rulers. And these were documented in these in these collections. So this has been going on. Uh, and. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that uh, I live in a time in which uh, I can listen uh, to some of these voices and learn a lot from them uh, in the way that maybe some people in the past have not been able to learn. And I think uh, I, I know that yeah, we have one hour only of presentation. And then we open up for discussion. So I'll stop here. And then we can have whatever discussions we want. <laughs>